we're walking through the book of Acts as a church, and it's amazing when you think about it, we're doing what the early church did. They gathered together, they encouraged one another, they sung spiritual hymns together, and they got into God's Word. And so this week we're picking it up in Acts chapter 21, and uh, at this point Paul is winding down his third and his final missionary journey. This will be the last missions work of Paul that's recorded in scripture and so last week we saw in in chapter 20 uh, we saw that Paul had sailed past Ephesus he went to Miletus and he sent for the elders of the Ephesian church to come and meet them there and as he met with these men he knew that this would probably be the last time that he got to meet with them he knew that he would probably never see them again and so the focus of his message was that they should stay true to the faith he encouraged them, first of all, by pointing to the example that he set with his li- life, right? He said, you saw how I, I went about the business of the Lord, how I taught in the morning, how I worked hard, how I encouraged the believers. And then he says this, look at my example. What a powerful way to teach, right? That we could with our lives just say, look at my example and, and follow my example. But we also saw in chapter 20 that Paul taught them with many words. He exhorted them. He opened the word of God and he he spoke to them and he exhorted them to teach, these elders, to teach and to watch over the flock that God had given to them. And finally, he turns them over to God and to God's word. Scripture says he commended them to God. Paul knew at this point that that he couldn't stay in Ephesus. He couldn't stay with these uh, believers there. He had to go. And at the same time, he knew that when he left, that wolves would come in and they wouldn't spare the flock. He knew there were those, even in the midst of the church, that would rise up and, and twist the word of God to suit their own desires. And so, ultimately, he's trusting God's grace to take over at that point, to guide and to instruct the Ephesians where he could no, no longer. Now, turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 21. We're going to begin reading there in verse 1. The scripture will also be up on the screen, so you can follow along. Acts 21, verse 1, it says, And When we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and Through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And and they all, with their wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we uh, arrived at... uh, to Limus, and, and there we greeted the, the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and Coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, What are you doing? 
weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. May God bless the reading of his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you today that it is living and it's active. And so we approach it reverently today, but we also approach, approach it expectantly, believing that you desire to speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this passage that we're looking at today is a, a passage that has generated quite a bit of controversy through the years. We've seen that with other passages like this in the book of Acts, but the main reason for all the controversy here has to do with Paul's determination, with his desire to go to Jerusalem. We saw back in chapter 20 that he was planning to arrive in Jerusalem before the Feast of Pentecost. We also know uh, from other letters that Paul sent to various churches that the, the main reason for his trip to Jerusalem was to deliver the offerings that he collected from the Gentile churches to the church at Jerusalem. And, and for this reason, he had all these guys traveling with him. I don't know if you saw all those names in there. He had, he had Sopater, a, a Berean, uh, Aristocars, uh, and Segundus, who were Thessalonians, Gaius from Derb, Timothy from Lystra. He had uh, Tychicus and Tropimus from Ephesus. He, we also know that Luke was present with him, right? And so here are all these guys, and they're traveling to Judea. We know they departed from Miletus, and this was no doubt uh, early summertime since Pentecost would take place in June. And, and so this is good news for sailing, okay? It means that the winds on the Mediterranean would have been out of the north. They would have been very favorable for travel. But don't miss those words in verse 1. Luke says, we parted from them. Some translations use the word departed, right? But the Greek word here is what's really important. It's apospao and it means to tear away. Luke says Paul was literally torn away from the Ephesians there at Miletus. In other words, he, he wanted to stay with this church so much, to stay with these believers that he loves, but there's something that's, that's moving him on. There, there's something that's driving him. There's something that's forcing him to go to Jerusalem. And so they run a straight course to Kos, a small island off the coast of Asia Minor, where they stop, they likely camp out for the night. And then they continue south down the coast of Asia Minor to a, a larger island, an island of Rhodes. Most likely they stop in the city that bore the same name on the north side of that island. And then they sailed to Patara, which was on the southwest tip of Asia Minor. And it was likely that the ship was stopping here. And, and while they're there, they're looking for a ship sailing toward Judea. And they found a ship that was heading towards Phoenicia, whose major city is the city of Tyre. Now, remember, Paul is in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. And so he's, while he's there in Patara, he chooses to change ships in favor of one that would be a more direct route uh, to where he was going. And so the ship they boarded was going straight across the Mediterranean Sea instead of tracking the coast, and it would have been a much quicker journey. And so they sailed to the south side of Cyprus, it tells us that. In other words, they didn't sail on the coast, they went to the south, and they landed in Tyre, which was only about 35 miles north of Galilee. 
And, and it's here in Tyre that we see Paul stopping for a few days. Now I read that and I say, Paul, why are you stopping? I mean, aren't you in a hurry, right? Maybe he, he, at this point he made some good time and he feels like we're ahead of schedule and so we can hang out for a few days. But verse 4 says, and having sought out the disciples, he stayed there for seven days. The city of, of Tyre was, it was a large, busy seaport. It was the largest city in Syria. And it would be tempting for Paul to take a little break while he's there. Just say, I need a little R&R, I need a, I need a rest, right? But that's not what Paul does. Instead, he sought out the disciples there. And so translations use the word finding here in verse 4, but the word is really different from the word finding in verse 2, where they found a ship, okay? The Greek word we translate finding in verse 2, it means to kind of happen upon something. You just kind of stumble upon it, right? Paul stumbled upon the ship that was sailing the direction he wanted to go, but the word we translate sought out in verse 4 is much different. It's this diligent searching, and that word is only found one other place in all of Scripture, in Luke chapter 2. Uh, someone else was looking for something very diligently in Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And considering the time of year, I want to read this to you from Luke chapter 2, verse 8. It says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found, there's our word again, they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. I think it's important for us to see that Paul, when he gets to Tyre, he is diligently searching out other Christians, right? He doesn't just kind of get off the ship and bump into them. He has to search through the town to find them, right? He diligently sought them. Now, the word there, disciple, it means learner, okay? It carries with it this connotation of being a devout believer. And so the question comes to mind, well, why were the believers so difficult to find? And the answer is a simple one, one word, persecution. Okay, in six years, the Roman emperor Nero would begin to kill any Christians that he could find. And no doubt at this point there was considerable persecution in Tyre. But we see that after these disciples are found, Paul had fellowship with them. All right? It tells us this, that Paul valued fellowship. He understood how important it is for believers to gather together. And honestly, some people just don't get this concept. I've had people tell me, well, pastor, I can worship God anywhere I want to. I can worship God out in the woods. Yes, you can. I can worship God at home. I can worship God at the golf course on Sunday. Well, I don't know by the words coming out of your mouth if you're worshiping God on the golf course, right? But, but I, I don't see, here's what I don't see, this idea of independent Christianity in Scripture, right? Instead, I see this, this idea of fellowship, of koinonia in the Bible. I see iron sharpening iron. I see exhorting and building one another up in the faith. Hebrews 10.24 tells us, and let us consider how to stir up one another to what? To love and good works, 
not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Can I just be real honest with you? I don't come here on a Sunday morning to hear myself talk. I get to hear myself talk all week long, and I'm kind of tired of it already, right? But I gather with you because as Christians, I know this, that none of us have arrived, right? And so we all need encouragement. We all need prayer. We all need time together in the word of God. We need time to worship together so that we won't just be believers, but we'll be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. You see, a believer is someone who believes in Jesus, but that word believer or believers is only found four times in the Bible. What is found more often is what is God's best for you, and that's the word disciple that we see here in verse 4. Because disciples have, have made that commitment in their life, yes, to accept Christ, but they take it a step further. They're people who seek to become like Jesus, right? And, and so they spend time studying God's words, spend time diligent in prayer, sharing their faith with others. That is being a disciple. It's becoming more like Christ. And that's my prayer for each and every one of you here at Grace Point. And look at the message that these disciples had for Paul there in verse 4. It says, through the Spirit... They were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now, this is a very challenging verse. It's a, it's a very debatable verse, right? Because as we will see, Paul will end up in Jerusalem. But while he's there in Tyre, God revealed to these disciples what would happen to him when he went to Jerusalem. And so the question that comes here is, was Paul being disobedient to God as he's going up to Jerusalem? As I was studying for this message, I read commentaries on both sides of the issue, and I've come to this conclusion. There is no indication that Paul was disobedient to the Holy Spirit. I mean, this is, this is Paul, right? We've seen time and time again where he was clearly guided by the Holy Spirit. Don't forget, he was prevented from going into Asia Minor by the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 16, right? Instead, he's directed by the Holy Spirit to Greece, right, while he's at Troas. And I have no doubt here that Paul was under the direction of the Holy Spirit as he determined to go to Jerusalem. When we talk about the direction of the Holy Spirit, here's a few things you need to understand today. Number one, write this down. Number, write this down. Sometimes good people can give you the wrong advice. Sometimes good people can give you the wrong advice. There's this thinking among many believers today that the will of God is always the path of least resistance. In other words, if it's difficult, God must not be in it. If it involves suffering, well, that's outside of the will of God. But understand, Paul knows that suffering is ahead of him. That's been made very clear many times. But he also knows that it's the will of God to walk toward that place of suffering, not away from it. The Holy Spirit did not tell them to inform Paul not to go to Jerusalem, right? The Holy Spirit predicted persecution, right, for the apostle and the disciples love him so much that they say, we don't want to see that for you, Paul, and so they beg him not to go. Christians today are just as inclined to give advice as they were in Paul's day, right? We're just as inclined to share. And unfortunately, often the advice which is given is well-intentioned but wrong. Because we cannot avoid the sad fact of life that even some Christians will not understand the path that we're taking as we follow the Lord. Some parents are opposed to the decisions their children will take to follow the Lord if it's a difficult path, right? Oh, I want my son or our daughter to follow the will of God. We dedicate children here, right? We say, God, that child is yours. I, I want them to follow you. And then we hear the mission field. Whoa, wait, hold on. I don't know about that. 
Not, not my son or my daughter. Okay, fine, the mission field, Lord, but, but not there. That's too dangerous of a place, right? And so, so often we take our desires and we trump God's will with our own desires, even in the lives of those that we love. And so right here in Acts, God is not speaking through the believers to tell Paul, don't go. Instead, the Holy Spirit revealed Paul's fate to the disciples, and they draw their own conclusion that Paul shouldn't go. Again, Paul was being led by the Spirit. We read in verse 5, it says, When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. And so he doesn't act on their warning. More evidence to me that he was being led by the Holy Spirit. Paul makes his way to the ship, and there's this touching scene that takes place on the beach here at Tyre. You see, in that time when uh, someone of importance would come into the town, when they're leaving the town, you would escort them out. You would walk with them until they were outside of the gates of the city. And as Paul heads to the ship, that's what's happening here. And the believers say their goodbyes to Paul. And it reminds me of the scene we just saw in Miletus, right, with the Ephesian elders. And here are more people who really loved Paul. They, they hated to see him go, especially knowing what his fate in Jerusalem would be. But apparently they couldn't persuade him to stay away from Jerusalem. And, and so when there's nothing else left to say, I love this picture, they kneel down on the beach together and they pray. And they send him on his way. Verse 7. When we finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. So they leave Tyre, and the ship heads to the town of Ptolemais, which is about 25 miles south of Tyre. They stayed on there with the church overnight, but then they keep pressing on with their journey. Verse 8, on the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house, listen to this, of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. Caesarea was a city uh, further to the south, down the coast from Ptolemais. Caesarea was the capital of the Roman province of Judea, not Jerusalem. In that time, that was the capital, okay? It was a city that was built by Herod the Great. We had the privilege of seeing it when we were over in Israel just recently. And it's designed to be, it was designed to be this Greco-Roman city. It had a stadium, a theater, had a, a temple that was dedicated to Caesar Augustus. And here Paul comes into the house of Philip. Remember who Philip was. Philip was one of the seven deacons chosen by the church back in, in Acts chapter 6, right? We last heard from Philip after he went out into the wilderness. He's sharing the gospel with this Ethiopian eunuch, and he's making his way up the coast. He's sharing the gospel, Acts chapter 8, right? But here's the question. Do you remember this? What caused him and others to leave Jerusalem? Do you remember why the Christians left Jerusalem in the first place? It was persecution, right? It was persecution, especially by one Saul of Tarsus. Remember, one of the other seven deacons that were chosen, along with Philip, was a man named Stephen. And, and Stephen was stoned to death by order of the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling council. And it was Saul of Tarsus who carried out the punishment of Stephen. He, he stood by and he oversaw Stephen's death. He held their coats while they stoned him, right? In other words, Philip knew who was responsible for his good friend's death, and now Philip has settled down in the city of Caesarea, and he opens his home to Paul and his companions. Listen, if this doesn't tell you the power of the gospel when it comes to forgiveness, I don't want to know what will, right? 
And this is the type of forgiveness that we are to show to one another as believers. Here was Philip opening his home some 20 years later to the same man that condemned one of his close friends to death. This is how we should be with others, and that's how exactly how Jesus is with us. Jesus forgives. We know that as Jesus hung on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He forgives unconditionally. He forgives us unconditionally for our sins. And Philip forgives Paul here unconditionally. You see, Philip was a disciple. He wasn't just a believer. He he was a man that had the heart of Jesus. Here was a man who devoted his life to Jesus and he sought to be like Jesus. Can I just say, that's the difference between a disciple and a believer. And, And that's what God wants for us is to be disciples. People that can forgive, and not just forgive, but truly let it go, right? Jesus tells us that unless we forgive, the Father cannot forgive us, right? Philip embraces, look at this, he embraces the man that killed his friend through the power of the Holy Spirit because he was a disciple, right? He was diligently seeking God. It paid off for him, too. Look at verse 9. It says, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now, these four daughters of Philip have Two very special things mentioned about them here in verse 9. First, we see that Philip's daughters were morally pure, right? They were virgins. But apart from being morally pure, there was something else that was special about these girls. They were spiritually powerful. They had the gift of prophecy. People ask, do we still have prophecy in the church today? And my answer to that is, where did you see it stop in the Bible? We don't see that, right? We still believe the Lord can give a person a word for someone else. And most of the time, it's a scripture that really speaks to that person where they're at at that point in their lives. But other times, more rare, I would say, God gives a person a direct word for another person. And often, the person speaking the word doesn't even know they gave the word at all, right? And so, yes, I still believe in prophecy. Right? But it is shared in, in a way that's fitting, using Scripture as a guide for whatever message it may be. But we're also introduced to another prophet here in the next verse, verse 10. It says, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. They stayed there in Caesarea with Philip for many days. They're enjoying this time of fellowship with Philip, with, with his family, And a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea to visit Philip and Paul. And we read there in verse 11, it says, And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. How wild is this? The guy comes in the room and he takes Paul's belt. Let me have that. And he starts to tie himself up. Like, come on, what's going on, right? And then he he prophesies. He says, Paul, here's what's going to happen to you. Now, Agabus doesn't tell Paul to stay away from Jerusalem, but he simply tells him, here's what's going to happen to you when you go to Jerusalem, right? Agabus was the messenger, and I believe that if the message from the Holy Spirit was that Paul shouldn't go to Jerusalem, it would have been a different message, right? In that case, I think Agabus would have said, Paul, the Holy Spirit says you shouldn't go, but that's not what Agabus is saying. He just gives the warning, and he doesn't jump to any conclusions, I believe that the people in Tyre got the same word from the Holy Spirit when he was there, right? But they made their own interpretations out of it. They concluded that Paul shouldn't go, but that's not what the case was. Again, Paul was following the direction of the Holy Spirit. And I I think this whole passage uh, about Agabus is here to tell us that Paul was following the direction of the Holy Spirit going to Jerusalem. Look at verse 12. It says, when he heard this, we and the people there 
urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So it's Paul's friends, it's his traveling companions, the ones that are, are supposed to encourage him to, to live out the will of God and do the will of God. Now They're now discouraging him from going to Jerusalem. And the second point, I want you to write this down, about the direction of the Holy Spirit is this. Sometimes the advice we offer others can be based on more on what we desire than the, what the will of God is. Sometimes the advice we give to others can be based more on what we desire than what the will of God is. These guys are all pleading with Paul. Paul, don't go to Jerusalem, right? Don't, don't do it. Agabus wasn't included in this, interestingly enough, right? It was Paul's friends who tried to persuade Paul not to go. They saw the potential for danger, and they love him so much. Understand, their motives were right. Their heart is in the right place. They wanted to protect Paul, but the truth of the matter is that sometimes God calls us to do difficult things. Sometimes God calls us to difficult things. Sometimes God calls us to do painful things got really quiet in the room. And so even when we look at the lives of our friends or loved ones, sometimes we're concerned, right? We're concerned as parents about the situation. We want to fix it. We want to make it all better. We want to make it comfortable. No, no, no suffering. But think about this. Maybe God wants to teach us through our experience sometimes, and that is how he does it. What we need at that point sometimes in others' lives is to step back and let God do his work in that person's life, right? I mean, you could ask, well, Paul's getting all these warnings. Think about this. Every church he goes into, every believer he finds, they're prophesying over his life. All these warnings coming at him, right? And why is he getting all these warnings? Well, you could say these warnings are intended to convince him not to go to Jerusalem, and if he keeps going, he's out of God's will. I don't believe that. I believe these warnings are to prepare him for what awaits in Jerusalem. These warnings are intended to kind of test his resolve and, and pressing on in the midst of those warnings is a sign of obedience and faith. It's my belief that these believers are right in their understanding that Paul would be imprisoned in Jerusalem but wrong in their conclusion that Paul shouldn't go. And so Paul answers them. Look at verse 13. He says this, what are you doing Imagine Paul turning to you and saying, what are you doing, right? What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart for I'm ready not only to be in prison but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. You see, Paul already knew what awaited him at Jerusalem. This wasn't new news to him, right? And, and, and write this down, number three. Sometimes our advice, rather than encouraging people to follow the will of God, discourages it. Right? And so we need to be very careful before we give advice. Because sometimes our advice, rather than encouraging people to press into the will of God, it can discourage them from doing it. When Paul says here, breaking the heart, it's this phrase used to mean to, to break the will. It's weakening the purpose or causing a, a person to go to pieces so that they can accomplish nothing. Paul was saying, what are you doing to me? Why are you doing this to me? He's saying, right now I need your encouragement to follow the Lord's leading, the Spirit's leading into a difficult place, and instead of encouraging me, you're crippling me with your grief. You, you see, Paul is ready to go and suffer and die, but I don't know if his friends are ready for him to go and suffer and die, right? Sounds a lot like the disciples with Jesus, right? 
Again, this wasn't new news to Paul that he would face persecution. This is not a new revelation. He told the Ephesian elders the same thing at Miletus, right? And so his friends are emotional. They're heartbroken by the news, but he wasn't going to be sidetracked by their emotions either. Paul says that not only is he ready to be bound, but he's ready to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul says, man, I don't know about you guys, but I'm ready, right? In fact, three times in Scripture, Paul says about himself that he's ready. Romans 1.15, he says he's ready to serve. In our text, we see he's ready to suffer. 2 Timothy 4.6 says he's ready for sacrifice. But the question for each of us today is, are we ready? Are you ready? Are you ready for whatever God has for you? Even if, hear me, even if it involves service or suffering or sacrifice. How can Paul say, man, I'm ready to die for you? I mean, how can he just like kind of boldly face death without fear? Well, Paul was not afraid of death because he knew this. He knew that his sins had been forgiven. He knew he was, he was good to go, Matt. He also knew this, that he was called from the very beginning to a ministry of suffering and pain. Guys, here was a man who was acquainted with pain, and he really was ready to die for the sake of the gospel. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul writes, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. In other words, while I'm living, man, I got Christ. And even when I die, man, that's gain because I'm going to be with Christ, right? And so his own life was of no value to him. He, it, what was of value to him was his relationship with the living God. Paul was a man of, of great faith, and he believed that whatever the circumstances, God was with him, God was guiding him, God was directing him. And, and so here's Luke's response to verse 14. Look at this, what they, what they say. So when he would not be persuaded, in other words, they're trying to convince him, but they say he would not be persuaded, and so we ceased, and instead we said this, the will of the Lord be done. The will of the Lord. This was Paul's will already, right? That was that the will of the Lord would be done in his life. And this is what's going to happen in the coming weeks as we look at the last seven chapters of the book of Acts. But today, as we close, I want you to see verses 15 and 16. It says, after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain nason, of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. So Paul makes it, makes it to Jerusalem. And we're going to see next week what begins to unfold in Jerusalem, right? But he keeps going toward Jerusalem, even knowing the fate that was ahead of him. But as I read this, man, I can't help but think of, of the great faith of the Apostle Paul. He makes this fateful journey to Jerusalem knowing what will happen to him, right? It, it would be easy in that situation for him to be uh, sad and, and downcast and depressed, but I don't think that was Paul at all. He looked to the future expectantly, waiting for God's will to be played out in his life. Listen, when God calls us, our response has two parts. The first part is to say in our heart, yes, Lord, yes, whatever you want, I'm going to be obedient, right? And so Paul already did that, but then he keeps moving toward Jerusalem. He's walking into a difficult future, fully aware that God is leading him there. Because understand, talk is cheap, but obedience is always active, right? It starts on the inside, this heart of obedience. God, I want to do your will, but it always flows outside to real action in our life. 
And that often has to fight through a few things, right? When we're talking about obedience, we've got to fight through our own fleshly resistance sometimes. But we also have to fight through the resistance of others who love us and don't want to see us suffer, don't want to see us walk through difficult times. And so some conclusions as we close. The first question is this, can suffering be God's will for us? Many books on suffering and the will of God, we wrestle with that all the time. But the real question is, can suffering be God's will for us? Well, we know in Matthew chapter 14, Jesus sent his disciples out onto the Sea of Galilee, and he knew that a storm was coming, right? He, he knew that there would be a storm that would threaten their lives. He, he told Saul at the very beginning that suffering was coming at his conversion, right? Chapter, uh, chapter 9, Jesus told us, each and every one of us, that we would face difficulty. John 16, 33, I've said these things to you that in me you may have what? Peace. Because in this world you're going to have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And then there's always the story of Job. <laughs> when we talk about suffering, we can always read the story of Job. And hear me, contrary to popular belief, suffering is just a part of life here in a fallen creation, and it can happen to us. We can suffer even when we are serving the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But here's the thing, outside of Christ, suffering is just suffering. Outside of Christ, man, you're walking through a difficult situation and it just stinks, but understand that when we are in Christ, God can use suffering in our lives in so many ways. We know that James says that suffering works patience in us, right? Job's story, his suffering was used as a witness to others. Our, our suffering can be a witness to others when we respond in the right way. And we also know this, according to Philippians 3.10, that it draws us closer to God. So then how should we act when we know that suffering awaits us? Well, we can look at Paul's life, and I would say this, don't try to avoid it. Don't be like Jonah, try to run the other way. Instead, seek to glorify God in the suffering. Secondly, I would say use the time as, as you wait to walk in the power of the Spirit and not in the flesh. 1 Peter 4, verse 1 says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves, look, listen to this, with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And I want to encourage you when you walk through a season of suffering to look beyond the suffering to the glory that awaits us. 2 Timothy 4 verse 6 says, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come says, I, I fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And listen to this, he says, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There's a reward waiting for us. There's glory waiting for us on the other side of suffering. And so finally, let me answer this question. This is, is sometimes we don't know how to respond when we see a family member or a loved one walking through suffering. How should we act when we find that suffering awaits someone else? Well, Peter reacted poorly, right, when Jesus predicted his own suffering. 
Because Peter wrongly reasoned, as we often do, that suffering and rejection could not be in God's plan. And so Jesus rebuked him, saying that, man, if you want to shortcut God's plan, that's the work of Satan, right? So get behind me. I want to see the work of the Lord come about in my life. And so instead of bringing discouragement when we see suffering await someone, here's three things that we should do. Number one, I would say that we should go with them. That we should go with them. Paul, and he's going to Jerusalem, but he's not going there alone. He's accompanied by people who, who care, deeply care for him on that journey. Secondly, I would say draw near to them. When someone's suffering, that we would get close to them, right? Don't shy away from someone who's walking through a hard time. Thirdly, I would say pray for them that they will endure the trial with patience and that God's will be glorified, not necessarily that they would be spared. And finally, I would say provide comfort and assistance to them when needed. Would you stand with me today as we prepare to close? How do we walk through others in the midst of suffering? I want you to think about all those things for just a moment because it is exactly what the Lord does for us as well. In our times of suffering, yes, he, he tells us to go, go. He's telling Paul, go to Jerusalem. But Paul also has this promise that Jesus said, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. And so he tells us, Jesus tells us to draw near, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He calls us to pray. Romans 8, 26, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. When you don't have the words, you don't know how to pray, oh, the Holy Spirit to pray through you. And finally, understand this today. Trust that he's your provider. Trust that God will provide. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and I love this line, the God of all comfort. You know him today as the God of all comfort. It says this, who comforts us in, our, in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So he's saying when you walk through a difficult situation, understand that God comes and he comforts you in that place. And you can take that comfort and as you're walking along, you see someone else in need, you can take that same comfort and you can comfort them with the comfort that you've received. So the suffering maybe you're walking through even today, God's got a greater purpose for that in someone else's life. But I want to encourage you, hang on, hold on, press in. Remember early on in my Christian life when I would struggle, I would always pray, God, get me out of this. Would you just get me out of this already? And I'm convinced more and more that we don't need to pray, God, get me out of this. But we need to say, God, what do you want me to get out of this? <laughs> Teach me in the midst of suffering. That you would be glorified, that you would be lifted up. With heads bowed around this room. I want you to take just a moment because maybe you're there today. And, and you're walking through a season. It's not time to stop. It's not time to quit. Know that God promises he will be with you. Here's what he asks of you in the midst of suffering. Draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. And when you feel like, man, I can't even pray, allow the Holy Spirit to, to pray through you with, with groanings, with words that are too deep, and understand today that God is your provider. But maybe today you're not walking through that season, but you know someone else who is. And you can take that same comfort that you received and you can comfort others. So I want you to take a moment. Just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you right now.
Say, God, I want to be obedient. I want to, I want to do your will. What is it that, whatever it is that you'd have me to do, Lord, I don't want to just be a hearer of your word, Lord God. I want to be a doer as well. So allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you in just this moment as we, as we close with worship.